The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. Welcome back to another episode of Hardly the Hottest. Today's topic, two biopics about best friends who become brutal betrayers. My name's Duncan. This is my best friend. This is Ryan. Ryan, did you think I was talking to someone else? Are you not my best friend? (laughs) I'm just saying I'm here on Google Maps checking out some gas station real estate in Oklahoma. In case you couldn't tell, we're talking about the new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, as well as our personal favorite, the assassination of Jesse James. Ryan, I'm running out of breath. You take the second half of that title home. (laughs) By the coward, Robert Ford. If you didn't have trust issues before this episode, you'll have them afterwards and Duncan and I's relationship might not survive. Duncan, not only are we here under potentially false pretenses, but it's also our first pot at night after dark. There's been unlimited juice boxes. Anything could happen tonight. I was being a real Jesse James, having a moody morning. One point for Duncan being Jesse, one point for Ryan being Judas. Did you take one of our riders out on a bike ride and then brutally shoot them in the back? No, I just sat on the ice, stared at those fish below. Wishing my heart wasn't so frozen. <laughs> but how's your week, Ryan? Well, Duncan, I have I've cracked the code. I've gone a beautiful mind on our social media accounts, and I'm finding out that when we fight and I air our dirty laundry, the crowd goes wild. We got double-digit likes. The people demand it, Dunks. Our friendship has to be sacrificed for our success. I don't know what you've posted. <laughs> so I'm a little nervous. <laughs> don't worry about it, Dunks. But yeah, as we get into Judas and the Black Messiah and the assassination of Jesse James, one, a new watch for both of us came out in 2021. The latter, a top five for both of us, one of our favorites. It begs the question, what's a biopic? Fight number one. Here it goes. Biopic, Ryan. It's a biographical picture. It's not a biopic that you get removed from your back after your friend has stabbed you there. You know what? Don't, don't you throw my Midwestern heritage and accent in my face like that. I resent it. You coastal <laughs> elite. There's a Midwestern accent for biopic? That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Biopic, that's a dirty word. That's when you try to get a fascinating person and tr- tell their story <laughs> from birth to death in two hours. You can't do it. So this is where we just get the most interesting slice of life, which... Unfortunately, if you're a fascinating person, that may be the end. Spoiler alert. The titles for these films are spoilers. Duncan, I'm pretty sure a biopic is probably like a medical <laughs> like procedure. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Get that dirty <laughs> word out of your mouth. Uh, anyway, yes, Duncan, uh, this is not just rehashing details of people's lives, either the whole scope or uh, a couple of momentous days. These movies are telling certain men's stories 
parallel with other men's stories and thus making them richer films and something that's more interesting seeing both characters through the lens of the other. Yeah, so we have Bill O'Neill, who is the Judas, to Fred Hampton as the Messiah, and Robert Ford to Jesse James, fleshing out these stories, giving her a real back and forth between heated enemies, like Ryan and myself. I don't even get to touch that. Let's talk about Judas and the Black Messiah. We educate, we nurture, we feed, and we lobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. We scream, and we shout, and we live by this anthem. But it's power to the people really worth their ransom. When I dedicated my life to the people, I dedicated my life. You get to go out there, talk about dying a revolutionary death, because you don't have another person growing inside your body. Anywhere there's people, there's power. So in early 2021 release, Judas and the Black Messiah, it's about Fred Hampton, the complex and charismatic leader of the Chicago Black Panther Party, who is followed by a conflicted disciple who has been coerced into becoming an FBI informant in the late 60s. Have you felt coerced any time recently to murder me? No, it was a very easy choice. (laughs) (laughs) No coercion. I thought it was an unpaid internship. 40 pieces of silver? That's just a bonus. Oh, dunks, you would. The true story of Judas and the Black Messiah is directed by Shaka King and dunks. There is quite a roll call here. This is the next generation of great actors. We have Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Chicago Black Panther Party. We have Lakeith Stanfield, uh, William Bill O'Neill, an FBI informant. We have Jesse Plemons as Roy Mitchell, who is Bill's FBI handler. Martin Sheen playing a true monster by the name of J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, and Dominique Fishback as Deborah Johnson, Hampton's girlfriend and a fellow member of the Black Panther Party. We have a hell of a film here, Ryan. What you think? Well, first, I think Martin Sheen, what happened? Was that... Uh prosthetics that's not what he actually looks like i know i know but that was just like that i don't know is that actually how jager hoover looked have you actually seen a picture of the man but no that's that's not what Hoover looks like at all from the pictures i remember from what i remember from school i just don't remember him looking anything close to that i was kind of confused for a minute um yeah dunks this one like i said it surprised me and i really really enjoyed this film what do you think i loved it this i mean after watching the film letting it sink in how heavy that title is Judas and the black Messiah. And this film absolutely lived up to that title. The craft is incredible. We'll get into that. But for me, it was like, why does this feel like such a Scorsese film? And on the second viewing, it's all in the opening scene. We have a flowing coat on a wet street with a score that evokes taxi driver. We have undercover tough guys in a pool hall with an undercurrent of violence, turns into a horror scene with nice coming through the roof. And what's the soundtrack? We've got a 60s girl group as the chaos breaks out. That's just the opening scene. So it's like, oh yeah, 
that that's where that Scorsese vibe comes from. And also throughout, they the filmmaker said, yeah, Departed was a big influence on this. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what I was going to bring up. I remember halfway through the film, I was just like, man, this is just the Departed, like just all over again, but a new story. But definitely double agents, undercover, trying to play, you know, different sides. It's it's very reminiscent of the Departed for me. We were just missing uh, missing Jack Nicholson sniffing around pretending to be a rat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I like this a lot more than I like Departed. Uh, shoot, I don't even know. I haven't seen Departed in so long. I don't know if I could say that, but I, I want to say yes. I want to agree with you, Duncan, although I guess we should fight. So, Duncan, you're wrong and you're a fool. But, Ryan, can we agree that this has incredible craftsmanship on all points? Yeah, I agree, Dunks. The two points of craft that really stood out to me were the score and the cinematography. The film really just pushes you into the fray often the score is i don't know if dissonance the right word so much as grading like it's not it's rarely like smooth outside of the music it's very like it's ratcheting up the tension it's ratcheting up the uh tortured mindset that bill o'neill must have been in also the anxiety and stress of fred hampton fearing for his life while trying to navigate um you know what he's trying to live for and the camera is the same way, just very uh, visceral. It's just constantly, I felt like pushing us in or pushing in on characters. It's not letting you stand and watch it from the sidelines. Yeah. So this was shot by Sean Bobbitt, who was Steve McQueen's uh, cinematographer for his first few films. I think Hunger is one of the best visual storytelling films I may have ever seen. Uh, but here, a much different. This is not an art house approach. This is much more Hitchcockian, Scorsese, like crisp, sharp camera moves or seamlessly flowing from behind. You're in there with them. <laughs> you're, you're feeling the tension. Yeah, and the soundtrack, just like, like this film isn't just one thing. It's so varied, but it's still cohesive. Like you have the chaotic jazz. There's sometimes where you just hear like the bass line ticking and then other times you'll just hear like the hi-hat or the snare going off and coming in and out together but then there's also a much more traditional score we got those girl groups popping up in throughout but it's got variety and then it's all working when everything's working great that means the director's doing their job shout out to shaka king what's also incredible all those actors we listed before yeah, Dunks, the actors are really good, not just the obvious leads, the ones that people will probably know. You brought up the two women in their life, and I think they have two of the most powerful emotional scenes in the film, and I think it's worth highlighting them as well beyond just uh, Kluya and Stanfield. Yeah, Daniel won the Golden Globe a few weeks ago. Lakeith is incredible. You've seen them both together in Get Out. I think it's too late for us, and I don't think we have the influence to push it, but Dominique Fishback as Deborah Johnson, she should be supporting actress. She's one of the best performance of the years. I mean, her performance is so strong that Chaka King lets the most important scene in the film play out across her face. And it's really in her where I feel like you see most of that moral conflict. Like, is she going to bring a baby into the war zone that is Chicago? And she fully supports Fred Hampton as a member of the Black Panther Party who wants to liberate his people. 
but she would also like to have a father for her child. And just to see that pull on her face, she was incredible. Yeah, that scene was really powerful when he is talking. He's just been released from prison. He's uh, kind of having a homecoming, giving his speech, and he is talking about dying. And everyone else, you know, is clapping, you know, because he's inspirational and they're also willing to give their lives for the movement. And you can see that conflict, the hesitation in her clapping is the easy way she shows that, but it is the, the emotional complexities of her face that just shows that worrying, you know, I'd like to have a father for my child, but you know, these are worth things worth dying for. And that is just, yeah, she does an incredible job in that scene. Yeah. I couldn't keep, keep my eyes off her from just like the very beginning when he, um, Hampton's doing that first recruiting speech and she is just getting all hot and bothered. And then later there's a scene together with them where, yeah, Fred Hampton, passionate, strong leader. He can bring various gang members together. But like the first time they're alone, he he is just all shy. <laughs> she has to make the moves. Yeah, that was a great dynamic between them two. We're seeing, he's, you're getting seeing, caught, he's getting caught reciting his Malcolm X speeches. He gets all nervous about it. She has to put him in the place when, when he sneaks behind her back and reads her poetry. You can you can get someone's full life just by showing a few years of them. And what you love about these films is seeing the other person play the foil. Like you're only as strong as your nemesis. Title says it all. The two title characters play a foil to one another. Um, they are a lens for the other character that we get to see who they are or elements of them that maybe those men don't see themselves. I think the one big reason why these films work is because both men matter to the film. It could be really easy to just have Jesse James or Fred Hampton be the main event and the person who betrays them be just kind of like the guy who's easy to hate. But both films humanize these men. Both films draw out really important aspects of human nature. And thus, both characters are fascinating. Uh, I mean, going back to performances, Stanfield's performance outside of a couple scenes that I didn't like, I, I thought his tortured, conflicted, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Clearly, he's starting to uh, be inspired and believe and want to be part of this movement that by his very presence, he's undermining, undermining and going to betray. And I think Stanfield navigates what could be a really hard performance he just navigates it well and i think a lot of it has to do with his expressions uh his eyes are really good at expressing that i don't know i think he did an incredible job yeah he's only been acting for about i think 2008 his first film was short term 12 but you know and maybe the dozen different projects i've seen him in he's never playing the same character twice he's certainly committed to it he's and he's absolutely great to play off what you're saying these aren't clichés these are people living their lives. This isn't a theoretical debate. And that is how these two films elevate above the dirty word, the biopic. Because the biopic, only one person matters typically in a traditional approach. But through relationship, or at least through relation, uh, we get a bigger, fuller picture of who these guys are. And that's true in our own lives. This dynamic 
really brings the tension and the betrayal on a real deeper level because both men are humans and they both matter and they're both embroiled in a war of ideas. And when you take ideas, which can be abstract and put flesh and blood on them, it really makes it powerful. I mean, there's a huge power when ideas are embodied through example. And then when those same uh, ideas are destroyed by embodied people, not just cliches. The consequences of these ideas play the strongest with the women. We were talking about Dominique Fishback and how great she was. But another scene, there's a character of a mom of a member of the Black Panthers who got into a shootout with the police. Heartbreaking just how she sees this coming and just you feel like she's mourned her son years ago because she Mm -hmm. just knew when you're fighting for your ideas, your time is going to come and his time came in. Through the mom, we see a counter to how people are used as pawns in this war of ideas. You know, the FBI uses Bill as a pawn. He's not a human. But these struggles are played out in people's souls. It's people who are the battleground, not just an abstract uh, arena where ideas are thrown at each other, as we're so often used to reducing our own uh, conflicts today. Judas and the Black Messiah. This certainly is a heavy film. It's impossible not to talk about the politics of this film, but if you're intimidated by these conversations, uncomfortable about them, want to see a different side of history, the film absolutely works as a psychological thriller and a drama. So we both highly recommend it. Yeah, and there's and there's more to be said that we'll we'll say at the end of the pod in case anybody hasn't caught up with it even though I guess the title kind of implies <laughs> not completely. I mean, so, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but yeah, I think for fans of the departed again, we've discussed it. This movie nails the same tone, the same tension, the same fear that you have for, uh, you know, double agents and, and life, you know, people's lives being on the line if they're found out. So yeah, it's it's a really good place to start. Black Klansman is also very similar to this. And uh, he infiltrates the KKK in the 70s. I would say that the tone there is much different than the tone here. It's it's just more blunt. <laughs> it's more Spike Lee. <laughs> yeah, it's more Spike Lee. It's just more blunt. Where this movie is going to be a little more restrained, pushing us into it, taking things very seriously. Sometimes it's just Spike Lee just being Spike Lee. <laughs> And obviously, we got a shout out to the best thriller of the of the past decade, Get Out. That's the first time we saw Lakeith and Daniel together. And we also get Lil, Lil Ray Howery back for one scene. And if you love Lakeith being great, check out Sorry to Bother You. That also features Tessa Thompson and Stephen Yoon and Jesse Plemons, who is incredible at being vile with a smile. What's your insult for him, Rag Guy? The greasiest character ever. He's a, he's a used car salesman in another life. Yeah, many times in this film, he sees where the line is being crossed. Sort of has a defeated shrug and then dutifully steps over it. But please, Jesse has been so good for so many years, almost two decades now. He deserves to be more than the fat Matt Damon. 
Jesse Plemons is being great. You can listen to our last episode. Um, he was in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Fargo Season 2. He plays across Molly Shannon and other people in a little town called Sacramento. Shout out to the neighbors to the north. His romance in Breaking Bad, that was my favorite subplot in the entire series. <laughs> Speaking of greasy characters, Breaking Bad, <clears throat> Exhibit B. <laughs> he was just a sweet little boy who, yeah, once again, vile with a smile. Observe and Report is a great film, which I have a feeling not enough people have seen. It's Seth Rogen in the lead. But this is basically, what if Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver was a mall cop? So it's just that dark, <laughs> twisted sense of self-importance with a lot of humor. And final Jesse Plemons shout out to Friday Night Lights and his band, Cruzy Victorious. Great tunes. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. You know what we can't lose with? We can't lose with one of our top 10 films for both of us. The Assassination. Top five dunks. I think I was a six or seven, right, guy? Wow, we are going to fight. I will murder you <laughs> over that. All right, let's take it away to The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Can't believe I'm sitting with none other than Jesse James. Many's the night I stayed up, my eyes open, my mouth open, just reading about your escapades. They're all lies, you know. I honestly believe I'm destined for great things, Mr. James. You give me signs that make me wonder. Maybe your mind's been changed about me. I can't figure it out. Do you want to be like me? Or do you want to be me? All right, the summary, there is no need for a summary. That long-ass title says it all. Top 10 film for both of us, starring Brad Pitt as Jesse James, Casey Affleck as Robert Ford, written and directed by Andrew Dominic. If you're here for some hard-hitting criticism and analysis, too bad, we're just going to be little boys gushing about how great this film is. Yeah, there will be no fights here, nor will there be any objectivity. There'll just be subjective love for Brad Pitt as Jesse James. Ah, I love this thing. I will never forget when I first saw it. I rented it from the local family video dunks. Remember family videos? It's like blockbusters, but in Illinois. I'm a coastal elite. I saw it in a theater in the suburbs. (laughs) So yeah, just the camera work, the score, the slow patient progression to depict the two men separately. And then also in relation to the other, I just remember it feeling like a really beautiful moving painting. They take their time and let things unfold. It is slow, but gorgeous, well worth it. If you want to see actors act, this is what you get. Now, Ryan, we are in the right here. We have excellent taste. (laughs) Why don't more people love this film? I'll tell you why. I'm going to present my case here, Ryan. Okay. I'll say, I'll tell you why. This is my son, HW. America is on trial. So this came out in 2007. Did any other good films come out in 2007? 
Uh, we had Daniel Day Lewis as Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, won two Oscars, six nominations. So 2007. Oh, yeah. There was another little film starring Javier Bardem as Anton Sugar, No Country for Old Men, written directed by Coen Brothers, also shot by Roger Deakins, won four Oscars, four nominations. Jesse Man, James. Talk about a year for Roger Deakins. No Country and Jesse James in the same year. That's when you just retire. You've peaked. And I don't think he didn't win the Oscar that year. I know he didn't. That's ridiculous. I still remember being pissed off about that. I was like, okay, at least if Jesse James does a win, no country will. And I remember he didn't. Probably I'm still split, mad about this. He probably split the fans. Yeah, besides that incredible competition, some other problems. That title is too damn long. This film is two hours and 40 minutes. This may be the least likable Brad Pitt we've ever seen. We'll talk about that more later. Big old box office flop only made thirty, cost 30 million, only made 15 million, but we love it. So let's start gushing, Ryan. <laughs> Where do you want to start? I mean, I guess we could do the train sequence. That is the classic best shot cinematography. Duncan, go. We will put a link in the show notes for you so you can watch the scene, but I'm going to paint a picture here. We put our ears on that rail. We see the vibrations of the rocks. The light is coming down the tracks. That score kicks in. We see shadows of masked men in the trees, light flashing across their face. The train runs into the camera, pushing it down the tracks. We see Jesse standing strong in silhouette. Sparks start flying from the brakes of the train. We're hearing gunshots into the night. And Jesse walks through that steam and into our hearts. Hell yeah, brother. You're getting a little steamy here. (laughs) My sparks Uh, are flying. Talk about building a myth. To me, one of the most visually stunning sequences I've ever seen. Again, when I first saw it, I've never forgotten it. It moves me. I think it's gorgeous the way he plays with the silhouettes, the way he plays with the trees. And the light from the train, the way it leads up to Jesse, just solidifying his myth, his legend in our mind, at the same as Robert as he's with Jesse on his first heist. So the Great Train Robbery, 1903, one of the first films, a hundred years later, Roger Deakins, Andrew Dominic, Brad Pitt, once again, create film history. There is no exaggeration here whatsoever. This is perfection of cinema. I think we covered it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, let's focus on gushing on specifically Roger Deakins. Beautiful all the way through. You have action sequences like that. Beautiful portraits. Those old lenses that are just blurred around the edges, distorting everything we see. And I love, too, how he often, whenever he has uh, Robert, but especially when he has Jesse look outside a window, we get a shot of what he's looking at and it's distorted. It's like the the road down into the town and the other buildings and it's kind of blurry or the lines are a little wobbly. I think that not only creates a really iconic, beautiful shots, again, painting-esque, but it also exemplifies Jesse James' own unstable mental condition and how he's viewing the world 
And it's just a little off, like it's there, but it's not right. And it just works on both those levels so well to where it's not just beautiful images we're getting, but it enhances the story and the characters. Is this your number one for cinematography? Yeah, it is. I just, I mean, even just Brad Pitt sitting in the grass playing with a snake, the way that shot with the grass all (laughs) behind him, perfect. It's like a Wes Anderson shot, perfectly asymmetrical, basically. I'm there's just nothing, nothing not to love dunks. Gorgeous film. Yeah. This is also one of my favorite scores by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. I mean, this is probably something I probably shouldn't admit on a movie podcast. This is the only movie motion picture soundtrack I've ever bought. And only have I bought it. I've listened to it 30, 40, 50 times. I listen to it constantly. That's another really great strength of this film where it's not just playing with the tropes of classic Western soundtracks. It's just making something totally its own. It's, it's, it's patient. The notes are methodical. It's beautiful. It matches the tone of the film perfectly. Such a broody score. (laughs) Duncan, I am a brooder. I love when things help me brood. When we get into four fans of, we will talk about some other great scores by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. All right. Great cinematography, great score, great acting. We can't pretend to be in love with Brad Pitt and not talk about Brad Pitt. Boys, potting about Pitt. (laughs) After Jason's sunsets, one of life's greatest joys is talking about Brad Pitt. (laughs) It's someday in the future we will go through the eras of bad. We have baby Brad, beautiful Brad, bad boy Brad, box office Brad, the best of Brad, and plan B Brad. No, that's not a joke. Duncan and I have actually come up with a seven part series to go through Brad Pitt's filmography. You can skip that, I guess, if you want, if you're still listening, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. Going back to cinematography, I was like, oh, I think two of the most beautifully shot films also feature Brad Pitt. Not sure if that's a coincidence. Tree of Life. He just makes everything better. (laughs) Yeah. Tree of Life is also, yeah, beautiful and Brad Pitt's a lot different in that film. (laughs) I just kind of made that connection. (laughs) So is this the least likable character he's ever played? I mean, as an audience member, we certainly dug him in this, but as just a person, he's a bully. He's pretty emotionally standoffish. And then he's just randomly outbursts of like, I don't know, aggression and making fun of, Robert, uh, you know, he's paranoid. Let me set it up. We're used to Brad in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's driving the cars. He's got his shirt halfway open. He's got the sunglasses, nodding at chicks. That's the Brad that we know and love traditionally. This is a, yeah, this is a pretty unlikable Brad. (laughs) Yeah. Of, Of all the films I've seen of Brad's, like in Thelma and Louise, He plays a total asshole, total scumbag, but he's looking too good. You can't hate him that much. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, beautiful people are assholes. You know, that's all he's doing there. It's, it's understandable. We get it. So I'd say similar with interview with a vampire, but I think the standout for his worst character, not his worst character, the most vile, unlikable person he's played is California. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but just, a conniving 
dirty looking serial killer. Yeah, the beginning of, of Bad time, Boy Brad. I was going to say, most of the time, it's kind of antithetical to what you think this film would want to do as well. So it's coming out in 2007. It's coming up against big heavy hitters. It gets Brad Pitt, who's one of the most famous movie stars in the world. People will go just to see him. And rather than pulling a money ball, which I love money ball, but pulling a money ball and really like using all of his character and all of his acting prowess to make us empathize and love Billy Bean, he almost uses all of that to the opposite effect. So rather than making this a Brad Pitt vehicle of, oh, come see Brad Pitt, he'll he'll move you. It's like, oh, come see Brad Pitt. He'll probably annoy you. He'll move you into murderous jealousy. But yes, Brad Pitt's performance is phenomenal. It brings to light uh, one of the main themes of this film, Duncan, which I think plays into it, which is human versus hero. Yeah. So we haven't been talking much about Casey Affleck. Casey Affleck was the guy who was actually getting all the nominations for this film. He was he was on a hot streak because he has an incredible performance as it's almost like a twisted coming of age tale of sorts to just see this little boy who's reading his comic books about Jesse James and just desperately dying for significance inserts himself into his life as the little puppy dog, which is certainly kicked around quite a bit. You know, seeing his hero, he loses faith as him once he sees him as a human being. And then also not a likable human being. Yeah. That's one of the strengths of this film is it's not just Jesse. It's not just Bob, but it's the whole gang. You know, we think about Wild West and cowboys and they're definitely idealized and mythologized in our history and our own uh, movies have done it and our own thinking, you know, and all of the guys are basically jerks or assholes, you know, Paul Schneider's like creeping around being a creeper. Jeremy Renner is just a rageaholic trying to murder him. None of these guys are like, you know, oh, you meet your hero and it's everything you want it to be. All of them are mean, ugly, just humans. And Bob is coming to terms with that where Bob is in the likable, but he has a dream and he wants to be Jesse James and be part of his gang. And then his hero fails him. Uh, you know, his dream doesn't exist. When he meets Jesse, he doesn't meet Jesse the myth. He meets Jesse the human. And it just disappoints and crushes him and then slowly turns him into the anger and resentment that leads uh, to his killing of Jesse. And Duncan, this leads us to a quote of one of our favorite listeners, John, shout out, when our heroes fail us, pain and confusion ensue. One of the favorite lines from the film, do you want to be like me or do you want to be me? And just Robert Ford's just obsession of him. Beyond this being about your heroes or your idols failing you, whether it's uh, parents growing up or a teacher or some role model, and then at some point you grow up and you realize they're a human just like you. And there is a real crushing aspect to that. Here, though, the life they lead is so volatile. The West is so violent. They're violent men making their means and their gains from violent ends. It really showcases how unstable they all are. I mean, you see that when Jesse like puts a knife to Robert's throat and then he starts laughing hysterically like it's all a joke. And 
again, it's not a likable thing. You as the audience are like, what on earth is happening? It's like when somebody pretends something's a joke when they really meant it seriously, but to the 10th degree, it captures that really well. And it shows the dark side of fame with Jesse as a human. I mean, Dunks, let's ask it. Why does he, why does he go dust that picture off? He knows what Bob's going to do. Little greaser. We'll go into that and some more scenes at the very end since we don't want to spoil it all for you. So that'll it's in go the title. Yeah, but it's so much more. And what I think makes this film incredible is the epilogue. Mm. The whole 30 minutes after the assassination and how yeah. that plays out. And we haven't talked about Sam Rockwell. He really shines in that epilogue. So we'll talk about that. Um, the spoilers for this and Judas at the very end. The real strength of Brad's performance is showing that mental instability, that skewed view that Jesse has. It's the idea of when you're famous, at what point are you living into people's expectations or ideas of you? At what point do they become bigger than you or they dwarf your own humanity? You know, the idea of fame being a burden he has that great quote when he gives Bob the gun. I go on journeys outside of my body. I look at my red hands and mean face. And I wonder about that man that's gone so wrong. He feels very disassociated, very uh, other from the decisions he's made, the violence he's clearly capable of. And we've seen him capable of throughout the film. And it just shows how estranged he is from his own personhood and the self-hatred that he struggles with uh, towards who he is, whether that's the fame that's built around him or the person underneath that fame. And we don't get that, but we get the, the struggle there. And it's all through, again, one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances, uh, through his eyes, through his mannerisms, through his tones, his delivery of lines. It's just really good. This is the cliche acting thing. Acting is reacting. The camera will just hold on them for quite some time and you see them process what the other person says, react, and then plot, and then plot again. It's a brutal game of chess out there. In a, this is not Minnesota nice. This is not the kind of Midwest we've heard about so much. So this is great. Are there any films that can possibly compare to this? Yes, I say there are two. <laughs> And I disagree with one of them. Okay, we have The Proposition from 2005. Another Western, a betraying of a loved one. We got the score by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And once again, we got my guy. We got Guy Pierce in the lead. I just say, if you like this, watch Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> it's an infinite loop. And also Andrew Dominic's first film, Chopper from 2000. This features an unrecognizable Eric Bana who goes through extreme weight. This is just a real fun Australian crime theme. It's got a real feel. A little, is it your guy. I watched it. I didn't like it. What? I didn't think it was that fun. You didn't get those in the Guy Ritchie fun criminal category? No, it didn't have, it didn't have Guy Ritchie's flair. Eric Bond had plenty of flair. I'm going to, we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight. That's all there is to it. Okay. Let's fight about our favorite Brad Pitt performances. Here we go. Top five Brads. So my five in order. I'm cheating. I got to go six. Duncan, Brad this Pitt. is not nom. There are rules. 
My top five with a bonus six, number six, true romance. This is Brad Pitt. Like I've never seen him before. I would love to see him reprise this role again. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Number five, snatch as the foul mouthed Irishman. Beautiful seven. What's in the box. My heart for Brad Pitt. <laughs> number three, <laughs> Jesse James. Number two, tree of life. I'm a fight club boy. Number one. So, as you said, this assassination of Jesse James features the second best laugh by Brad Pitt. My God, what just happened? <laughs> Boy, I can hear your gears grinding. Your little motor wondering, my gosh, what's next? What's happening to me? Fight Club still holds number one. <laughs> That's fucking funny. <laughs> you don't know where I've been, Lou. I think we have a lot of overlap dunks. Jesse James, of course. That's why we're talking about it. Tree of Life, of course. You and I both have probably an unhealthy obsession with all things Terrence Malick. You combine that with Brad Pitt and we're looking at restraining orders. Uh, Fight Club also on my top five. He's great as Tyler Durden. It's iconic. And then my two differences, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. There's a lot of hate for that film and I don't want to hear about it. And last but not least, Moneyball. I'm a baseball boy. Again, going to banking on Brad Pitt's likability on his star power. Uh, They do that, but his performance is well-rounded. You get, again, a human. It really draws out the greater human themes that exist in sports. So, Andrew Dominic, what's coming up next for him? This year, he's got a new one coming out, Blonde, featuring Anna de Armas as Norma Jean, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe. Brad's going blonde? No, he didn't cast Brad. I think the Brad streak between Andrew Dominic is over. <laughs> After he's had pretty much all male casts for all his other films. It's time to go female. Just as every K-pop girl wants to sing along with their favorite stars, Ryan and I just want to do a little quote along with our boy, Brad Pitt. So indulge us for a minute. This will be the worst karaoke you've ever had. Thank you. Duncan, I can't tell if you want to be like me or you want to be me. Your body knows it's your mind that forgot. Why did that sound so creepy? Because <laughs> Brad's that, a creep in this film. Don't that picture look dusty? You think you do, but you don't. <laughs> That's such a great one. You think you do, but you don't. <laughs> You're going to break a lot of hearts. All America thinks highly of me. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, even their narrator's got great lines. I mean, he squinted as if he found creation slightly more than he could accept. <laughs> Hello, Cormac McCarthy called. He wants his line back. I don't know who won the script that year. Could have been no country. I'll tell you who didn't. Roger Deakins, because he didn't win shit that year. So, Dunks, I only have one question for you. Who's your greasier dude? Who would you rather avoid a quiet cabin getaway with? Casey Affleck or Jesse Plemons? The people or the characters? About the play. characters they play in these okay. films. Uh... As Sam Shepard says to Casey Affleck in the film, the more you talk, the more you give me the willies. 
everyone's skin crawls when Robert Ford shows up in this film. Roy Mitchell, you know, he looks like a guy you can have a drink and a smoke with. But I think his actions were much more vile than Robert Ford. Yeah, I would agree with that. Robert Ford's just a starstruck, whiny little brat. That Jesse Plemons knows exactly what he's doing, and he doesn't want his daughter to bring a black man home. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's what's just so horrible. He's, there's times where he's like, hold on, what we're doing here is not right. But hey, just following orders, little Nazi, bringing him back to Breaking Bad when he was just a little Nazi. So Roy Mitchell in Judas, he's not just an evil, you know, greasy dude. He rash, it's his rationalization that's so, I would say, vile. And also, you know, we are so susceptible to ourselves, not only in our society, but individually. You know, he just says, well, Black Panther Party, that's just the KKK, two sides of the same coin. And you get that he believes that and he's not thinking about it anymore. And that's, that's the tough part. <laughs> yeah, he's swallowed the FBI's. Dogma, which, yeah, their COINTELPRO program was another side of that coin, domestic terrorism, killing so, Americans. So do you want to hang out with Casey and have awkward moments where he just stares at you in the bathtub? Or do you want to have awkward political commentary with Jesse Plemons on the front porch? I'd rather wrestle around with Robert Ford and give him some noogies and hold some nice to him throats and give him a little, a little, <laughs> a little slapping. Okay, I have no idea if that sequence will work. You can tell me when you listen to it later. But I thought it was fun to do. <laughs> it was fun to do. All right, that has gone on too long. Let's put a button on that conversation and start wrapping this thing up. Yeah, we were like a we were like the runaway train in that scene, Dunks, and there was no no Brad Pitt to stop us. We were just gonna keep going. We needed someone to walk in and just pistol butt us until the blood drips from our forehead because. We needed to be shut up. I will just say, Katie did leave the living room while I was gushing about Brad Pitt. <laughs> oh, man. she Maybe she's going to get some uh, guns and have you do some dusting around there, Ryan. She's jealous of you. Things, things aren't looking great for the Rye guy. I would ask what else you're watching, but you have listed three countries, Australia, Russia, and Ireland, which means you're looking at a map. I watched some films from Ireland, watched Young Offenders, which is about boys stealing some bikes to go find some cocaine that is washed ashore. That's a fun little comedy. Uh, watched The Wind That Shakes the Barley about the Irish um, War for Independence quickly turning into the Irish Civil War. Featuring Hoosier Murphy, my Murphy, Killian Murphy. Not Brittany Murphy? Where are other Murphys? Bill? No, that's Bill I don't Murphy. care. I don't care who the other Murphys are. Killian Murphy's my Murphy. That's your Murphy. Uh, went to Russia to watch Solaris and Stalker by Tarkovsky. I would try to tell you about them, but when you mix foreign worlds, enigmas, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, existential philosophy, Russian literature, I'm not going to have an easy conversation about that now. So it's time to move on to Australia. <laughs> So I love me some Australian films. We were talking about the proposition earlier with Guy Pierce, And now it's time to talk about another Guy Pierce Australian classic. We have The Adventures of Priscilla 
Queen of the Desert. This is Guy Pierce and Hugo Weaving, as you know, as Agent Smith from The Matrix. They are in full drag. They are taking their show on the road and they are bringing along Terrence Stamp as a transgender woman. And they get on this beautiful bus and they go through Outback Australia. And there are some scenes that put Road Warrior Mad Max to shame. We have Guy Pierce on top of a moving bus, lip syncing his heart away with like a hundred foot long dress, which brings to mind, you know, Tina Turner and Thunderdome or Coma Doof Warrior from Mad Max Fury Road with his guitar on top of those war machines. <laughs> this, so is yeah. this a comedy? Ooh, it's a comedy, but it's also, you know, dealing with transgender issues and homosexuality in the 90s. So there are surreal fantasy sequences and there are some dark scenes which bring you back down to reality. And yeah, but this is a fun film. If you're a Guy Pierce guy, I think this was his first big, big role. So definitely check that out. And the other Australian film I saw that kicked off the Australian new wave in 1971, a film called Walkabout. It is hard to talk about this film. This I mean, it's absolutely incredible. If you're interested in making films, I highly recommend this. This really has the playful new wave style of editing. It's comparing society to nature and how man has become displaced from it and how we're viscerally attached to it. It's you know showing the butchering of animals far more than I would prefer to see. And then also the butcher, a traditional westernized shop there's odd occurrences of sexuality. It's just, is that a selling point? <laughs> it, odd occurrences of sexuality. Yeah, it's, it is something else completely. I haven't fully, fully figured this thing out, but highly recommend Walkabout. Is it a narrative structure? Is it fiction? Doc? It truly is new wave where it's not following the rules. I mean, this film kicks off right away. You know, we're in, I think, Sydney. Then it's just two kids in the outback. And so the bulk of the film is these two English kids lost in the outback. And then an Aboriginal boy shows them the way. And there's just those communication barriers. So that's where everything is just on a very sort of visceral level. But there's just tons of wildlife footage of every little creepy crawly critter in Australia that wants to eat you alive and just beautiful birds, kangaroos hunting it's a beautiful mess absolutely fascinating film ryan what dusty pictures have you been watching no dusty pictures duncan just another round with mad for mads mads mickelson he is playing a high school teacher and him and his three buddies start discussing a philosopher who has a whole thesis that humans function best at their blood alcohol content being at 0.05%. And these four friends decide to test that theory out. It sounds (laughs) like the premise of, I don't know, like a James Franco, Seth Rogen movie or something. This to me, I thought this was like a very scientific bowling theory. Like after you've had one round of drinks, you become a better bowler. (laughs) Exactly. But no, it's, it's got the the depth of this film is just not belied by the premise. It's about losing who you are or were and the inhibitions that build up like calluses around who we are being removed. 
alcohol is the vehicle to show that. It is not glorified as you might think. It's not really played for last very often either. It's very moving. I cried. It was my favorite final scene of any 2020 film. It's just really good. I think we had to do a pot about it, Duncan. It's so good. You might even have a beer with me and maybe two because your blood alcohol content is best at 0.05. It don't argue with me. It's science and Mads. <laughs> One of my top five films of last year as well. Beyond another round, um, I caught up with One Night in Miami. Didn't love it. Uh, didn't hate it though. Uh, I think kind of goes into what I was saying about Judas and the Black Messiah. In Judas and the Black Messiah, we're seeing ideas take on flesh, being embodied in example. It's powerful. It's moving. In One Night in Miami, it just felt like celebrity endorsements of the ideas at battle during that time period. I just didn't connect to it. I don't know. Duncan, I know you like the end. The film slowly won me over. The first half hour just felt like exposition in motion. You don't need to spend 30 minutes setting them up. The next 30 minutes felt like sort of a sitcom where they're just walking through the door, expecting applause because they are who they are, ripping yeah. on those catchphrases. Maybe that's just their larger than life personalities because they are larger than life characters. But I thought the last hour really worked. You're really seeing what's on the line, what they're thinking, what they're fighting for. And this, this scene with Sam Cooke winning over a hostile audience, that I absolutely love. That scene was beautiful. Yeah, there was good acting. I liked the acting at times. There was some good rapport. Um, there were some nice moments. I agree. That was good. I actually liked the final scene. I thought it packed a punch. Um, when he sings, a change is going to come. I, I thought that was a, a moving moment. But yeah, overall, it, it just you know felt a little political science classy to me. I did see Paris, Texas, and I liked that a lot. And I'm just prepping for our All Our Exes Live in Texas episode. Yeah, we're not sure what episode we'll have next, but I am sure that it will be a fascinating, riveting conversation as usual. Thank you for listening. We're going to get into the spoilers for Black Messiah and Jesse James. So if you've seen those two films, stick around. But once again, thank you for listening this far. This is just made by the two of us. We'd love it if you read the show notes, check the links, see how to check out our website, give us that review, subscribe it, rate it. Ryan, the ratings are in. We got our first, we got our first review. Depressing takes on depressing films. Oh, wait. Okay, we've made it. We found our niche. <laughs> no, but uh, we really would love to talk to you guys. Uh, get into what you love about these movies, what you don't like. So hit us up on... Twitter, Instagram, we're on Letterboxd, we're writing reviews. Dunks is, you know, keeping up with the show notes. Give us a review on your podcast place of choice. But yeah, this is hardly the hottest. And uh, let's get into those spoilers. I'll give you fucking magic in there. Magic? It's hardly the hottest ticket in town, darling. Where's the next one? Temper. Hardly the hottest after dark. <laughs> we're going to be talking about why does Jesse let Bob kill him? <laughs> and why does he go around murdering all of his only friends? All right. So, yeah, let's kick it off with Jesse James. And then we'll get into Black Messiah after that. Ryan, Jesse James has been haunted by demons for decades. He is a Civil War vet. How many horrible things has he seen? How many horrible things has he done? How many people want to kill him? He's done. 
he's done fighting. So it wasn't the first time I saw Jesse James, but one of the subsequent times when he's staring at his reflection in the ice and he's just shooting his revolver one chamber after the other at that reflection. And it just dawns on you like, oh, he's depressed. And not just that, he hates himself. Like, I don't know, again, going back to what I said earlier, is it who he is underneath the fame or is it the person that he has become to live up to the fame and those expectations? Either way, you just realize he hates himself. And it goes back again to like, he wonders who that man is who has done so much wrong. He feels very disassociated from who he's become. And in the end, he's, he's done. He's done with the burden of fame. Yeah, I think we see the first real crack in the armor. It's just a brutal scene when he's just slapping that kid down, just yelling, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's yeah. Jim? yeah. And just yeah, beating this kid. And then as he walks away, he's just crying on his horse. I just think he he hates what he's become. And all he does that he has to do to defend this idea of Jesse James. But then, and that's what's so great, not only about the performance of Brad, but also the character of Jesse James, where even though he hates what he has become, it doesn't keep him from still wanting to preserve it because he goes around killing his gang. You know, like he's he's killing his gang because they can turn him into the feds and end his life. And so it shows that to get to where he allows Bob to kill him, it was a progression. Like he, he wasn't just there. He slowly and through many other people's lives, he had to go through before he's like, okay, no, now I'm done. It yeah. wasn't right away because he's killing his gang off. So he's trying to preserve something of it, what he hates. He's the gunslinger who's hanging up the guns. And then Dunks, you love the epilogue. So what separates this from Judas and the Black Messiah? That film takes the sort of documentary approach and you're seeing real interview footage and the title cards, how this all played out. The epilogue with Casey Affleck as Robert Ford and Sam Rockwell as Charlie Ford. Just the self-loathing and torture that they do as they become theater actors. And the narrator says 800 times he recapitulized an act of betrayal. And throughout the film, you see Sam Rockwell as just sort of a goofy, not too bright. Everyone's sort of making fun with him. At least he's smarter than Robert Ford, though. But here, once those actions see in, and it, he's just being tortured by going through this over and over again. And that cruel similarity, we see Bill O'Neill. We learn that he commits suicide the night of a documentary that aired that he participated in here. We see Charlie Ford also commit suicide. The real beauty of the epilogue is it shows that Robert for a time becomes famous like Jesse, right? But he's unlike Jesse. Robert can't control his own fame because his fame goes from, I'm the guy who killed Jesse James. I'm a hero. You'll want to keep that like telegram slip I gave you to the public turns on him and calls him a coward. And so like the very monster that he created turns on him, the very thing he wants, his dream literally happens and then turns into a nightmare. And that is a really powerful portrait of how 
what we want most, we still can't control and how it can go from the best thing in the world to the worst thing in the world. And that's the complexity of fame and wanting to be famous or wanting to live up to some idealized version of yourself or someone else is it's out of your control. And rather than being the hero who kills Jesse James, he becomes the coward who kills Jesse James. And that's like his worst nightmare. He wants to be famous. He wants to be a big man. He wants to be a myth. Yeah. His naivety shows. He says, you know what I expected? Applause. (laughs) And then, yeah. And then it's beautiful too. Cause at the end, he just kind of gives up and has this quiet life in Colorado and just waits for somebody to kill him. Same as Jesse. And he just repeats the, the circle. Yeah. There's not a lot of women in the assassination of Jesse James but the few scenes that they are in are great. One is the outhouse. This, there's no reason this film, this scene should be in the film. It does not it progress. Really isn't. The, it does not progress the plot in any ways. Like we were talking about when we watched Zodiac, where Jake Gyllenhaal is stuck in the poster creator's basement and there's just this ratcheting of the tension. Doesn't serve the plot whatsoever. One of our favorite scenes in that. Same here. Just the dialogue of seducing a woman in an outhouse. I'm not strange. I'm built just like the rest of them. She blows out that candle. And I bet you thought I was a lady. <laughs> if you want to know how to seduce a lady in the outhouse in the 1860s, take a, take a page out of Jesse James' book. And the other end of the spectrum, Mary Louise Parker. I think she's only in two scenes. But when she is mourning over Jesse James after she has, he has just been shot, I'm sobbing along with her. The line's like, Bob, have you done this? I swear to God, I didn't. And he's there with the gun in his hand. Just his complete detachment from the scene there. And Again, Mary the lies just, we, tell each, we tell ourselves. The lies we tell ourselves, and then we believe them. And just that outer body experience. Wonderful performances all around. Beautiful, beautiful. Just like Black Messiah. So for Judas and the Black Messiah, really, it's not a spoiler. Fred Hampton gets killed. It is worth considering how 99 bullets were used to silence one voice. Both of the men, Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton, were in the fight for racial reconciliation and justice, uh, depending on not necessarily on the same side, but they're both in the fight. And you see that Bill O'Neill at the end gets a gas station in Oklahoma for killing Fred Hampton. And what is the cost that we pay for ignoring the same fight for racial reconciliation and justice going on still in our country, the same ideas at war. And it's really easy to look at whatever your gas station in Oklahoma is to not get involved, to not care whether that be your, you know, your nice house, your career, your aspirations for life. And there are bigger things at play that are worth getting involved in um, because there's people's lives at stake as this movie shows. In Judas and the Black Messiah, Fred Hampton does end up dying. There are 99 bullets fired to silence his one voice So while we say these ideas are at war, and they are, uh, you can see in the disparity of those two numbers, 
is it a fair war or are both sides equally empowered? Uh, the answer would be no. I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance. To my black people. To my people. I pledge to develop. My mind and body to the greatest extent possible. I will learn all that I can in order to give my best to my people in the struggle for liberation.